Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Dark Sky Series, hosted by myself, Michael Colligan, and the one and only Jane Slade. But before we get into that, we got to tell you about our guest, Dr. Zibela Schroer of IGB. That's like German for freshwater and inland fisheries. So she studies it, and she studied artificial light's impact on that. And wow, what a show. But, Scotty, we got to go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Nailed's first vendor to jump on the, the dark sky bandwagon. That's right. We're all jumping on. We all got lots to learn. Keystone has lots of color selectable outdoor light fixtures for the distributor's needs. Yeah, we're all going to learn dark sky. But in the meantime, we still got to do lights outside, right? We got clients to service this transition. This is not a jumping off point. And so go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Great line of XFIT outdoor light fixtures. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's N-E-I-L-D dot org. Join us. Dark skies ahead right now. We got Dr. Zibla Schroer on Get a Grip on Lighting Dark Sky Series. So the purpose of this show that Jane Slade and I are doing is to educate the lighting industry, specifically lighting distributors and their vendors, as to, as to the benefits of a dark sky and to begin to adopt the principles at the grassroots level, at the manufacturer level, at the point of sale of the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting uh, as set out by the Illuminating Engineering Society. On today's show, we have um, Dr. Zabila Schur. Say hello to say hello to Jane Slade. <laughs> hello, thank you. Um, you pronounce my name really well. <laughs> it's a hard name, Zabila Schröer. Thank you for inviting me here. Yeah. Do you want me to introduce myself, where I'm from? And okay, um, I'm from Leibniz Institute for Water Ecology and Inland Fisheries. It's even a harder name than mine. <laughs> Short. IGB in Berlin, and we do since 2010 um, research about light pollution. So um, the effects of um, artificial light, our illumination, mainly from street light and public lighting on ecosystems, um, flora and fauna. And we work interdisciplinary uh, with many different researchers that do chronobiology, that um, are concerned about the um, human perception of light, um, astronomers, um, and yeah, that is a real whole task. And our new project, Ecos Light, is um, targeting especially the lighting manufacturers and um, the education of people that are involved in the uh, business of light. To s right now we ask what are the questions that lighting engineers, designers, uh, developers have in education. So how can we educate the sector better? And how can we provide um, more knowledge about the effects of artificial light at night, also on ecology, and how can we implement new technology like smart lighting in the best way? Well, hello, Sabila. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to pick your brain. I love that you have all of this scientific uh, research and information, and I have a ton of questions for you, especially with regard to how light at night impacts ecology. Um, but I wanna start before that, which is, you know, we all have our own relationship with the night, with the dark sky. And so I wanna cut back to, 
uh, if you would share with us a personal experience that you had under the night sky and how it affected you, what, what, what kind of profound feeling did it give you in the moment, in your work, and in your life? That was long before I started to work for light pollution. <laughs> I was um, in Indonesia at uh, Bromo Mountain, 2,000 meters high. I was working there in a small village um, um, on insect control, biological control of insects. And um, it happened to be the new, the Hindu New Year. And this is celebrated that you are feasting for four days. And on the day of the new year, you should not consume anything, no food, no um, so social contacts, nor um, electricity. So no light is allowed at all. No disturbances allowed. And I was sitting on the rooftop of my house, 2000 meters high, above the clouds. And I had a star lit surrounding where I thought I sit right in between the stars and the universe. And this was tremendous. And I can recommend everybody who thinks light pollution is not a problem to just experience the Hindu New Year. <laughs> or any year. You can also, everywhere we have, hopefully, we can protect these parts. Star parks are all over the world. The International Dark Sky Association is protecting these. And I think this is a major task for us because they are vanishing. The increase in artificial light at night is very fast. We say about 2% globally, sounds not so much. But when you think that something, a factor that has never been changed, only in a split second of evolution, <laughs> we are changing this factor. So all organisms are not used to this. And um, it is highly important to protect wherever we have relative natural light conditions at night. Mm -hmm. So my follow-up question is, I was reading your resume online and you are quite the prolific author of scientific research papers, but I did see, and it is hard to pronounce, so forgive me, that you are um, part of the Leibniz Institute of Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries um, in the Department of Eco-Hydrology so how did you get involved in artificial light at night and the research of it? Can you please connect that up for us? Just before you have to say this name again, you can say IGB. It's the short okay. one. <laughs> so it's, it's a water ecology institute. Um, water has a plane. So um, artificial light can travel far distance. And the um, people tend to, um, um, res to, to live at the water and to um, have vacations at the water. So the um, illumination is increasing rapidly there. And yeah, more than 10 years ago, um, people started to think, what does this do on our water ecology? How far can artificial light at night can enter the water column? Um, what colors of our um, light that we use change the ecology in there or does it change it and in what way and what can we expect? So everybody knows from greenhouses um, that light can increase growing of plants. 
But nobody thinks about it, what we do with street light and with especially light at the water area. So the primary producers are also related to light and the photosynthesis is related to this. And it's a good thing when we have green things growing, for sure. But if these greeneries or plants, also animals, have no darkness, then they can, cannot just increase and increase, increase their output. This will have a drawback. So um, we need the light. We need sunlight, especially because it's the best light we can give to the plants. Um, but we cannot illuminate plants and organisms the whole time. And this is what's happening when we use our public lighting and all private lighting as well, and we illuminate trees, for example. They never get the break that they need to recover, to um, get rid of the stress. And it's actually the same with trees as it is with water organisms, as it is with um, higher vert um, vertebrates. So um, the, the evolutionary um, difference of light and dark um, is a signal for all organisms to set their inner clocks and um, to be in the orchestra. And it is like a pump. If this clock is not set every day, then the um, processes, immune system, heart rate, can just be lowered the whole time and become one thing. And also the seasonal changes. Um, animals rely on their um, season. So signal for reproduction um, is light in plants and in animals. And we can disturb the natural light with our street light. So we need street light and we need illumination, but we have to keep it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. This is the major question, not to spread it everywhere. Right now, before thinking about this, everybody thought if you have one light pole, then you don't need, it is very efficient to illuminate as much as you can. But what you do, you disturb the night and day rhythm for the wild um, animals, for um, flora and fauna. It's interesting. You talked about ecology. I take issue with that. And I'll tell you why. I don't like this separation of humans and ecology. I think it's wrong. Like, I think the idea that human beings are some sort, of, some sort of way separate from animals and that these animals, oh, they need this darkness and these animals need this, uh, you know, circadian rhythm and they're connected to the stars and they, they, they fly to the South Pole based on the stars and the, the radio waves. And, and to pretend that we don't, we're not affected by that is, I think, an error, a major error in, our, in the way we think about the world. And it goes back to... I don't know, maybe uh, like the Christian world, I'm a Christian, but the Christian world perspective of, you know, being like unto God or something. I think that mindset is incorrect. And the other point, you know, I think it's interesting to talk about water. Should humans think about light like fish think about water? Like we kind of swim in light in a way. You, how do you feel about that? So to your first question, um, the difference between us humans and wildlife out there is that we can use our shutters, that we um, can switch off the light. 
we can turn off the light pollution immediately. We just need to switch off the light and then it's gone. There's no light pollution left. Birds especially cannot close their eyes. So it's not only that they cannot close their room and use curtains because the street light is um, disturbing their street, their, their sleep. They can, they will perceive the light because they don't have the eyelids that we use for shutting down um, and getting our darkness that we need at nighttime. So this is the major difference right now, that wildlife cannot um, shut it off. Nocturnal animals are evolutionarily adapted to wildlife, uh, to, to um, nighttime illumination, natural illumination. This is so low, and a frog can see color and perceive the night as we perceive the day. But when there is artificial light and just the garden light that is left on because it's a solar light and it does not even have a plug or anything to switch it off by nighttime, will disturb the vision of these animals um, in a very hard way because their um, eye, um, eyes are adapted to get as much light inside to perceive the nightlight and they get blinded. With frogs, we know that it can take up to an hour when they get blinded that their eyes can readapt to darkness. And this time is um, um, rather um, risky <laughs> for I hit wildlife. I hit a deer with my truck once. I was driving and the deer like basically stopped. And as soon as it hit the light, it froze. It couldn't see anymore. Yes. Like it, it didn't know, like it, as soon as it turned its head on the road and the light went in its eyes, it, it ceased to be able to see that I was coming. I, that's what I think happened. Yeah, right. This this happens with, with wildlife. They get simply blinded and they cannot see and they cannot disappear from the street. It's also the same uh, with what we think is the problem with insects, that they cannot go fly out of the light beam because um, this seconds to minutes that it takes for the eyesight to adapt to darkness is um, too risky. So they stay in the light beam and cannot go into a into the darkness again. And this is a barrier that our artificial light makes for um, wildlife. Our eyes are highly adapted to light, so we can adapt easily. But we also have the same when we illuminate in the wrong way. Um, we can, walking from um, illuminated places into the dark creates fear. And that's why people want to have it illuminated evenly. So if we want that, we have to go far down with the intensity. Otherwise, we cannot, um, we will create spaces of fear of dark and light. But there was another question, if we can flow in light, like fishes in water? Yeah, like one of the things that it's interesting. So I do a lighting podcast, okay? And I'm, I'm interviewing lighting scientists every single month, like two or three times a month, different people that are experts in light. And so I've become like a little bit of uh, a journeyman. I know a little bit about this and I know a little bit about this and I know a little bit about this and circadian rhythm and cueing and all these different things because I talk to people all the time about it. And what's kind of occurring is like humans are like fish figuring out that they're in water with light like and darkness. It's like we're, it's almost as if we're, our brains are realizing like as if fish all of a sudden said, hey, this is a lake and this is water. 
and then we're able to do something about it. Or you understand, like we, we before we never took, we took light for granted as if it was just there, but it's actually has a major relationship with us in terms of our health, um, you know, and darkness being a type of light sort of like as a, as a, a therapeutic effect being in darkness and moonlight and starlight. So, um, I just, I, I just always ask as many scientists as I can, if they agree with that, like it's almost like we're on the cusp of figuring out something absolutely astounding about who we are and why we're alive and how the universe works through light and understanding its effects. Well, we are day active organisms. Um, mammals mainly are night active organisms. Um, because before the mammals in evolution, there were the huge predators, the dinosaurs. So the first mammals had to disappear into the night um, to escape the big predators. And when human came up on evolution, <laughs> um, it um, used the space, space to escape the big predators, the mammals. There were no dinosaurs anymore, so the day space was pretty open to live without fear. And this is an evolutionary fear, nighttime. So um, the floating in daytime is somehow maybe a picture of being um, safe. And when we enter areas where we not, cannot see right, we, we get fear. And this fear is not just a fear because we don't see, because it's an evolutionary fear that there will be a big predator maybe. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you're right. This is like our aquarium, <laughs> the, the daytime. And we want to create this aquarium at nighttime with illumination. And the technology for it gets better and better. People tend to uh, save energy and say this is sustainable. So the intensity of these um, devices that we use gets higher and higher. But we have not yet found our well-being of artificial light in darkness so that we can see as much as possible. When you go out on a um, moonlit night, you're back in this aquarium because you see you, you feel safe that the surrounding can be seen. You can even distinguish um, colors in a moonlit night. We are speaking of less than 0.3 lux here. Our normal street light has more than 10 lux at least when we want to, when we have shopping malls. Besides that, this is increasing another um, hundred times. So um, the the right light level for us to all feel well and not to disturb the nature too much would be much, much lower. And we need much more um, research to identify where our feeling of fear, where our aquarium of light stops. Because I think this aquarium can extend to very low um, light levels as well. So I see that you have also done some research in terms of citizen science work. And what I think that's interesting is that you really are including, you know, everyone who's interested in the topic. And while I completely agree with you that we are really missing the mark on allowing celestial bodies to be guides for us at night, uh, one of the issues is that, say, 
A 75-year-old gets half the light onto their retina than a 25-year-old does. So there are actual physical things that happen in the human body. Um, and so it makes it very hard to find consensus. So what, what are you finding in your citizen science research in terms of how to build that knowledge and consensus? Especially the elderly people um, have a lot of experience with natural night light. They can remember the Milky Way in their home gardens and they appreciate natural night light often more than the younger ones because they just experienced mm -hmm. it more often. And it was in their use normal walkways, even at nighttime, through the forest with no illumination, not even a flashlight in the hand. So I guess their eyes are sometimes trained. I would not always say that it's always just um, harder to perceive nightlight, but um, it has also to do with the training. But you're right, the retina changes and the um, cones that perceive especially blue light um, are um, diminishing. And this is also a problem for our new technology. Because using LED light, which has a very high content of blue light, makes the glare stronger for elderly people. So if we want to um, include all people in our street lighting, we should ask for less blue light and um, use technology um, in the mid-wavelengths to very long wavelengths um, um, spectra. And yeah, with citizen scientists, the awareness is important and it's always um, nice to see how the perception of these people change that get, enter our pro mm -hmm. projects and they often say that their perception of the surrounding um, changes dramatically and they somehow are disturbed by lights which they before have not seen at all. So um, that happened to me as well, as I worked with light at nighttime more and more, that I get um, more sensitive for what light is, which light is needed and which light is too much. It's like, can't we turn it off after a certain hour and do big companies really have to pollute the area or can't they make it a small sign of light? It's also... We cannot perceive intensity of light. We can only perceive contrast. So there needs, there's not much need of a um, high intensity light to get our um, attraction. But a light that has contrast and is not there all the time will get our attention much more than these huge company signs that light whole towns and um, produce huge sky glows. Okay. And so I, I sell lights every day. I sell lights every yeah. day, outdoor lighting every single day. And we install like between August and November and December, we install a lot of outdoor lighting. Okay. So I'm going to tell you why it's very, very difficult, this issue at that point and why, you know, we're doing this podcast and why we're going to start to do training for nail distributors, uh, you know, how you do it. This is how you do a dark sky friendly lighting system. Here are the five principles. Here's the products. Here's the technical data, this sort of stuff. We're going to do all that. But the problem is this. When people um, are, are, have a business or a factory, okay, 
And you go to them and say, hey, you know what? We're going to change your light outside. We're going to have more light, right? Well, no, we're going to have less light. And it's going to be a lower Kelvin temperature. It's not going to be white. It's going to be yellow and orange. And we're going to point it down. And then we're going to put in sensors and controls so that when no one's there, um, it'll, it'll go off or dim down. Well, what if there's a criminal there? I say, you know, sensors know that, don't know the difference between criminals and, and regular people. So they, they, they will see both criminals and regular people will be seen by the sensors. Well, but, you know, uh, what about safety? What about safety? You know, it's not safe. It's not safe. We need to light this place up like a prison yard because I have uh, $20 million in inventory in there and I don't care. I want my cameras watching this yard. This yard. And by the way, one of my employees slipped, said he slipped on the ice over in the corner over there. And uh, now he's suing me. So I want the whole thing lit up so my cameras can see it all day. That's the kind of thing you have to overcome at the point of sale. And it's very difficult. Dr. Schroer. Mm -hmm. The problem is we do not have much scientific work on what safety and security is. So insurance companies make the whole thing worse because you can be sued because the light wasn't right. I just this morning heard about a study they did for the perception of um, young women um, and risk at night. And the the results were somehow like it was the groups um, of communities that could create fear, like a group of young men, which is unknown. And the resolution of the whole thing was we need more light. But there was no question in between how much light would help at this situation. Do we want to be seen? So I know as a woman being alone at night, light can also create fear because I suddenly feel exposed. Mm. Um, so we need to know much more about the creation of fear and what creates it. Mainly we feel, or um, there's a study showing that unique, um, so light in the same intensity where you can perceive um, objects and perceive faces is um, the best lighting to feel um, well, but still you need a surrounding which is pleasant and you need people. So you have to invite somehow the people to the light and to pleasant places, which is easy because you create something nice. If you have a really nice light, huge light around um, company areas, there is no light, but you feel the same fear because there are strange people hanging up around here. And maybe the light is bright and too um, bluish. So to, 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 uh, and I can't see right. And I feel exposed because these people really see who I am. And it's not like a, uh, an atmosphere where we all go to each other. And I think also the, the warmer color of the light can create less aggressive atmosphere. You would not want to go in a spa with um, bright whitish light. So there we know we, we feel cozy when the light is more um, in the long wavelength spectrum. And um, I think the same we should do on our streets, invite the good ones <laughs> to a living room out of it. And then when you create 
um, attraction of a company, then give the message out per day and say, okay, think about something you want to deliver to your customers, but you give it out for a certain time of the day when your customers will perceive it and it's not always there and then they wait for it. Where's the message again? So that is something that if I were you, <laughs> that I would like to sell. The light is not like there all the time and staring at you, <laughs> but giving you an attraction to look at and to look for it because you haven't seen it for a while. Where is it? Why? When does it doesn't come back? And I'm interested in this company. Mm -hmm. I recently heard of a study actually where there was more light placed on a crosswalk and actually that made people feel less safe because they felt, well, geez, why is it so illuminated? What should I be worried about? And so that we have the perception of safety, which can even go, you know, outside, even more light can create a, a less per lessly perceived sense of safety. So it's just a kind of strange thing because you have perception, but then that's not actually even saying if you are more or less safe. And so a point I made in a previous podcast with Mike is that the last thing I want to do as, an, as a lighting industry person is light things in a way that safety is perceived, but is not actually there. And so, you know, nighttime, you know, if I'm going hiking in the woods at night, I have to be aware that there are bears in the woods. So it's just because it's lit doesn't mean that there aren't bears there. So it's just, I think that there's a lot that needs to be considered in terms of the study, as you're saying, of what safety actually is, because there's a very big difference between perception and actual safety. And considering humans are diurnal, active during the day, you know, there is a less safety at night that should just be basically a, a bottom line. I mean, that's just the, the case of it. So I, I completely hear what you're saying, that there absolutely needs to be more research on, on the, the light at night and how much safety that really creates. Because I think that's a real disconnect in terms of how we approach light at night. And actually, this is a great segue, which is I know you've also written papers about legislation being a sort of block to being able to achieve more sustainable light levels at night. And so how do you perceive current legislation as a block um, in, the, in what you want to see happen with the light on the planet? Yeah, that is a very difficult <laughs> task because artificial light at night is so different a factor than other anthropogenic influences. So our environmental protection laws um, have to find a fine line how much you need to do as a human to survive. You want to have your crops in the field and um, you need to protect these crops and um, you want to build a house and you want to do some sports in the evening. So you need some area where you do your activity and this is all pleasure and somehow needed for our life. So you have to find a fine line. Where does it start that you harm nature? And for years, people have thought about um, protection laws which um, work in this sense and you have to show that um, you um, kill a population, that you diminish a population, or that you um, 
interfere with their habitat. So it is up to the user to show that you're not doing these things. With artificial light at night, it's different. To show that the population is uh, disturbed and hurt, it takes a lot of effort and long time of research, which we don't have for insects, for example. And we have um, not special protected um, species and habitat. This is how our nature protection law works, that we have certain areas and certain species which are highly protected. And you cannot disturb bats, for example. And this is a good example for illumination because we could use this law much better to show that the um, pathways and um, the drinking habits of the bats are disturbed and this can diminish the population. But we have a lot of insects where nobody really cares about and nobody knows about the populations. And these are also disturbed. And they feed whole ecosystems in pollination of wildflowers and in um, providing food for um, whole um, nutritional networks. Um, so we also need to protect these and we need to um, start protecting them from artificial light at night in a much bigger amount that we can right now. So we have to change the um, law to adapt to artificial light at night. That um, you have to, there it is the other way around. You don't need to show who you disturb. You should keep the light to the purpose you need. And you should always ask for your purpose, why you need the light. And um, you need regulations that ask if you built a new building, where do you need the light? Why do you need the light? How many visitors do you have to use exactly this amount of light? And when these visitors are gone, can you switch it off? Or if you want to illuminate a landmark, that's fine. When you keep something free for the um, um, bats to find some housings, when you illuminate the uh, church all around, we will lose these populations. And it's happening, although we have protections, protective regulations against it. So I hope that in the upcoming years, there will be um, stronger regulations to not ask who's disturbed, but to ask, why do you need the light? Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like there's more research that's needed to support this information. And I, I see you also wrote a paper about night matters and needing um, an interdisciplinary approach. Um, and what I thought was really interesting was that you are kind of saying that there's questions. We don't even know what the questions are, that we need new questions with regard to the night and new considerations. And so what are some of those new questions and considerations that are coming up in your work? <laughs> Night Matters, the publication is done with a whole interdisciplinary consortium. And it started um, with um, an interdisciplinary research um, project from which um, the researchers are still working together. And we said it is not just the illumination. It is much more um, of the night that we have not discovered yet. So uh, even with illumination, our work mostly stops at five o'clock with office hours. So we are day active, although we are working with a subject where you need darkness. So um, most companies do not provide um, areas or working hours 
attend to show their illumination products, but that's actually when illumination companies should work <laughs> at nighttime, <laughs> or at least as, at dusk, when illumination is used. So we realized the whole academia is also based mainly on the daytime, and we do not have the whole field of nighttime academia. And we urgently need institutes that give room. So with us, it's the same. We, I work for a water ecology um, department. I always have to say, what is my subject? How is it related to what I'm doing? And there are lots of um, areas where this is given. But what we researchers would need is calls and institutes where we can work for matters of the night because there are so many matters of the night socially we we do not know about the gender balance of night about social um equality at night we know much more about daytime but there are whole families that work at night shifts um and, and they would not meet each other in day shifts because they are used to work as cleaners as um uh, bodyguards or whatever and these people met at night, but when they create families, the children will have to go to school at day the daytime, and that creates a whole lot of um, problems in these families. Yeah, then we have the ecology at nighttime. Um, it is not just illumination, there's noise, there's um, so many things at night times which are different, and the, the night has to be treated differently for nocturnal and for day active um, organisms because um, some need the rest and others need the space. <laughs> and um, to understand how ecology and our economic needs work together, we need to understand um, the night better. And especially now as culture is um, not feeded anymore because we cannot meet and we cannot go to concerts, we cannot go out at night. So... Um, the whole economy that was built up for nighttime um, is decreasing right now. And we need research how to protect and how we can find solutions to get into this economy again. Because when you went to, um, I heard this in one talk from the mayor of, um, the night mayor of um, Amsterdam, who said, um, when you have a picture of a, um, an event in a um, club, you can see so many different um, economies behind it. The um, costumes, the sound, the light, um, the building, how it's shaped, what is used inside, the food. Um, there is a lot of economy, nighttime economy, which is not treated by academia as much mm -hmm. as the daytime economy is. That's fascinating that you that we've um, that um, there is discrimination against the night in academia. <laughs> <laughs> That's because we are diurnal organisms and we focus on daytime. And a lot of us will sleep at nighttime. And um, another researcher once uh, did uh, research on the twenty four seven society and found that it's not. Most people go to sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> we have a different um, economy at the night and a different amount of people that use the night. But we have a lot of services which are very important for us, like cleaning, like um, nursing, 
um, that have to be done at nighttime, and we need more justice for the people that have to do this. But the, you know, oh, Walmart, example, Walmart doesn't. Well, Walmart doesn't need to be open twenty four hours, and Home Depot doesn't need to be open twenty four hours. So a lot of the research is on night nurses and these types of people. But you know, they, and they and you know they get paid very well, and 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 or, they have their organized labor, so they can approach as an org, as um, from a union perspective. But there's a lot of people that work at night that are not represented by a union. Okay, they have no organization whatsoever. They're in a gas station. They're uh, they work at Walmart. They and I think our society has has to. If there's anything that's good from come from COVID, it maybe question the way we live and and how important it is to be able to shop for your groceries at one in the morning. Like, is that really that important? You know, do we need to keep people in those spaces like that? Yes, nurses, of course, firefighters, police officers, these these emergency jobs. But do we really need those other people working at night? Well, you say it, um, we need nurses, we need firecraftmen, we want to go out at night, we want to have clubs open. So all these people also are have needs and they cannot always shop on the daytime. So I don't think mm. every city needs a 24-hour shop. But when you want to provide services at nighttime, you also need to welcome the people that have to work at nighttime. Mm. So you can't just shut them off. It's hard enough for them to get an appointment as, uh, at the authorities mm. because they have to do it before five and they need their sleep as well. And um, our society has not just people that are diurnal, especially the like, younger people um, um, can be very laid back and maybe into the nighttime and they can be really productive in, mm. in this time and can provide society with uh, services that are really meaningful. And we should welcome this part of the society more and um, accept uh, or uh, accept that um, some people strong in the morning and other people's in the afternoon and some are at nighttime and they should do the work that has to be done at nighttime and we should protect these people. Um, I'm also thinking about the club bodyguards at the doors. Mostly they are doing jobs like policemen or even like nurses when there's a crash. And they have to organize themselves because they do not have the education for this. I, I heard a very interesting talk about this, about a lady that did her PhD about um, doorkeepers and um, how they communicate with each other, how they prevent um, risks. And yeah, it would be better if they had also a bit more of a police um, education. <laughs> And uh, things like this are mostly not considered for us. Um, so, um, yeah, we either stay at the daytime and say everybody goes to sleep at night. And if you have an, an emergency, you have to wait till the morning. I don't think it works. So um, we have to provide those services and we have to see that social justice is not just a thing during the day. It, it's funny because I think a lot of the light that we have instituted at night, especially since the onset of LEDs, when they're really all of the parameters of electricity and uh, evaporated. So then we could suddenly put them everywhere. And, and what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that there is uh, almost two types of lighting that's happening. The unintentional kind, uh, the one and, and the one that's sort of like fear driven. 
and then the the kind that addresses exact needs. And so I think that there's a, a there the intention behind our nighttime design is often based in fear and uh, fear and liability, and that we need to kind of do our research in order to be able to light for specific needs, whether it's um, door club people watching over the door or uh, shift workers who need to get a cup of coffee and four in the morning, um, that we need to address these populations because they're vital to our society. They're the honeybees of our, of our nighttime work. Um, but that what we've done is that we've just basically taken the daytime lighting scheme and shed that on our nighttime experience. And so that we really need to kind of shift our intention behind our nighttime lighting to one out of fear and sort of just copying daytime and into very precise uh, thoughts about what we're really doing and what is needed. So have you noticed that in your work that there's a more openness to people addressing this? What kind of shift are you seeing in the people that you are working with and the people that you connect with in your work? Yeah, the subject is growing um, and especially from the manufacturers, um, we um, experience more open ears <laughs> um, about changes. Ten years ago, when I started in this business, there was a very traditional way of how especially public light and security light was treated. This is how it's done. And now um, I think the discussion opens up. And I hope this, that this movement will uh, grow because um, lighting is often perceived even by citizens and um, even by authorities as something that is given as a, as a certain factor. You cannot do much. And this is the most heard answer when I ask for a change. It's like, no, we cannot change the system. Yes, we can, and we have to think about it. If we want to become a sustainable um, society, if we want to create sustainable cities, then we have to think differently, and we have to think how to change the things. And yes, maybe it hurts because there's no light one night. Yes, we will not die from it. We will change it <laughs> and mm. make it a better. And um, we need much more um, interdisciplinary work in our cities. If we want to really one day have smart cities that work from one end to the end other and where electricity is saved in the best way because you need it right here and mm. the high traffic is just organized, maybe by lighting systems over the whole town where where the cars should go or if there should be cars anyway. Maybe we our whole transport system will change, but we have to start and to get these answers, we cannot do it because our lighting system has no dimming function. We need a dimming function. This mm. is the thing. So start thinking about it now, everybody. <laughs> I think the movement has to do some reflection. Like when the, Jane and I met a, a year and a half ago or whatever, and we did a show and we were talking and it came out that, you know, is wasted light at night hazardous waste? Like, it's an interesting way to think about it. Is it hazardous waste, right? And the, you know, there, there's, we've seen that, you know, a lot of people say things like, like this, like humans never change or people don't change or whatever. 
But I think what we've seen from the pandemic is that people can change really quickly, actually. You know, and I hate wearing masks. I'm going to say it on the show. I hate it. I, I think it, it's the, the most humiliating thing I do, okay, in my life that I've ever done in my life. I look at the mask in my car. Is it new? There's another new one here. And I, I got to get out and do it. And I promised myself when this started, I'll never wear a mask. I said it. I'll never do it. But you know what? They changed the, they changed the mores and the social stigma on it became so powerful. Okay. It was so powerful, the social stigma, that Mr. Never going to wear a mask. Okay. I said I'd never going to do it. And you know what? It's impossible to shop. I could do it. I could go in there, but I would, everybody would look at me like I'm a piece of crap if I did that. Right. And so social stigma is the most powerful force for change. And so what I want to do with the lighting distributors is I want to educate them so that they can become a little bit snooty nosed about dark sky. What do you don't know about dark sky? What's the matter with you? You know, when we're, when, when us lighting distributors get together and have a couple beers, we're going to get the old guys on board. They call them the old guard in the association. If I get those guys on board, there's about six guys. They'll just start telling the other guys, Hey man, you got to start doing this dark sky thing, man. Cause that all the best distributors are dark sky guys. We're the best. And it becomes like, uh, what do you, what's this dark sky thing? Where's the education? How do I teach my people? You know, so social stigma, I think, is the force we got to look to. We really got to look to it as a movement and say, hey, good lighting people know about dark sky right now. And they're thinking about technically how they can train their, their, their people, their customers, their employees, their sales reps as to how to talk about this with the public and the customers. And government exactly. and rebate programs and stuff like that, right? Like that force from below coming up, you know? Exactly. And if we can change the um, value um, that a sign from a company that is um, brightening the city is a bad thing because it shines into the housings and we do not know about the economy, economic value of the sleeping rooms. Suddenly, flats that are actually high-priced become low-priced because of the um, advertisement of the company. And if we get this into our hands, and this is a research I would love to see, how much do the values of our houses go down because of wrong lighting of companies shine their light directly into the rooms and that are much brighter than street lighting or, or even street lighting that is shining up to the third floor in many cities and illuminating living rooms and um, sleeping rooms. It might be okay because you don't use the light because you just search something in the room. You don't need, even need to switch on the um, light by yourself. You can find it and um, people say, ah, what a nice service. This company does it. Mm -hmm. But when it's about sleeping, it is about your health and your well-being. And um, then it is not nice to have the light coming into your sleeping room. And we need a research that asks this question. And I don't think we need we any have... research. We don't need any research. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, real estate values are directly, not correlated, directly related to beauty. If a neighborhood is yes. beautiful, 
the houses become more valuable. It's very, very simple. Okay. And we don't need research. Like if you, for example, um, if you wanted to increase the value of my neighborhood, okay, in my, in my, where I live, you would change the wooden light posts to really nice light posts with nice dark sky, low Kelvin temperature lights, perhaps controlled that dim down at night. And the second thing you would do is take the electricity cables and put them underground. If you did that, my neighborhood would be so gorgeous. It would be unbelievable. But we have these stupid square box LEDs that look like something from 1984. You know that book by George Orwell? Like this light is spying on you for sure. Like it has like this antenna that comes out the top of it. It's so ugly. And then the, the wooden, uh, you know, some tree in Northern Canada was cut down so that we could put this ugly crooked post. And then there's these wires going down the road that string off to everybody's houses. If you fixed that, the neighborhood would be so much more beautiful and the value of the properties would rise for sure. For sure. But, although we know it, why isn't this a criteria for the companies to shut down their light? Because they disturb the economy of the real estate. Mm -hmm. But nobody asks them to change the light or says, ah, this is not a good company. They mm -hmm. brighten our whole district. Sure. So this question still is missing in the hats that the citizens and that the owner of real estates and uh, um, ask for their rights and say, just because you want to be seen, you, you, you decrease my um, economy. Why does this question not happen in a much broader scale? That's what I ask the people. And the more they think about in, in our projects, starting with the protection of insects, the more they ask about their right of natural darkness and not about the security lighting. I hardly have one of the citizen scientists in our groups that ask for security lighting. They feel fine with their surrounding, but they do not feel fine with um, when they are bothered by lighting because one company wants to be brighter than the other. And this is a value change, I think, that is still needed. Maybe I think always in the way of research that we need to show the people with results um, that we have a loss of um, value um, because of the brightness. Um, but maybe there's also another way of um, triggering people to ask for beauty. <laughs> Before we go, I want to dig into your expertise on aquatic ecosystems. And so, you know, in my work, I do a lot of presenting on how light impacts wildlife. And one of the stories I tell is you have whales at the top of the food chain and they astro-navigate. And incidentally, it's been shown in studies that not only can they not see the stars as well, but that they've changed their song to uh, different uh ranges to avoid the sound of uh, water vehicles and the motors. So we have impacted them now both ways, uh, probably more. And then on the other side, and I know you talk about zooplankton and their vertical navigation to the top. So there's the top and the bottom of the food chain right there. So that's what I know. What keeps you up <laughs> at night when you know that there is light penetrating the waters, which are 70% of the Earth's surface. At the beginning of our talk, I have already started with light is changing the growing um, regime of plants. And the primary producer, the periphyton, 
can be changed in the community. So the nutritional content can be changed. That's what we have seen in single studies. And I think this is a highly important subject um, because we have seen that with the change from um, um, nature and vapor lighting, which has this long wavelength lighting, mm -hmm. to LED with 3000 Kelvin, so not much, but still it is a much higher blue content of light emission. Um, the composition of this periphyton has changed a lot. And um, this is the primary production for the whole ecosystem, not just periphyton the aquatic one. The periphyton is the very first growth of plants. When you put a stone into the water, you will have a small growth of plants on it when you take it out. And when it grows bigger than the macrophytes, so bigger plants will be there and will grow. But the very small periphyton is then also um, in the water, and this is um, for grazers the first consumption. So for fishes, for any organism in the water, is a very um, important food source. Um, algae are in there, and the um, community of these. Um, this periphyton is very important because some of them, um, like we call them kieselalgen, they give a lot of um, nutrition in there and then they are cyano, cyano, cyanobacteria, for example, give not so much of uh, nutrition in there. And when the composition changes, we do not know yet how much impact this has on the whole ecosystem. But it might be that the biodiversity goes down and with this, the nutritional content for the grazers, so the fishes, the little larvae um, of insects, and that it, the whole resilience of the populations can be weakened by this. So the, even the, the smallest steps are already um, changing um, habitat and in the water as much as um, in terrestrial areas. And then even with um, bigger organisms, um, predators can uh, use the nighttime better with illumination to um, hunt. Um, when they hunt visually, they can hunt much better. So um, we have seen that smaller fish species stay um, in the um, um, deeper areas of the water, in the deeper column, um, as much as the zooplankton. So the um, vertical migration that is not happening, the up and down at nighttime is decreased. And yes, the algae consumption goes down in the upper layers, so the water quality might go down. But we have no idea also what the movement of all these animals, night and um, daytime, is doing to the whole water column, because there's a whole water um, movement that when it's decreased, it's like a pump that is not working right. <laughs> mm. um, in I an aquarium. read that it's likened to jet propulsion, that the movement of zooplankton is like jet propulsion to turn the waters. So without that, to your point, what is happening? Exactly, exactly. So we need a lot of um, research to really understand because we, we know that the um, artificial light at night is entering the water body and it's going quite deep and most of our rivers um, 
have changed habitat because of this. And then there's also the other migration of fishes, um, like salmon, like eel. And um, we know that, or we do a lot to make the way um, free again, because we have blocked it with many things, um, with ships that have to go um, through um, areas and with um, uh, water, um, energy, um, plants. And But we, we have to consider that these Organisms need to go through our um, rivers because rivers are li like living um, areas and um, they have to go through. And light can be a barrier as well. When we light the bridges, uh, fishes have a lot of time that they cannot go through this barrier of the light because mm -hmm. going from the lit area into the dark area is again a risk because the eye has to adapt and in this time the predator can just get them. So they will stay and use a lot of energy before they go for it. So what we can say is the vertical and the horizontal migration can be disturbed by light in the water. A lot, yeah, a lot, and, of, a lot of humans, sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I love that point. A lot of humans aren't aware that there's a, a whole life of animals at night being canadian like most a lot of canadian kids have an opportunity to experience nature like people in other countries don't have that opportunity as much it's very easy to go to wilderness in canada it's not it's a, it's, most of canada is actually wilderness so um a lot of canadians have experience with this where you hear you sleep in a tent in the middle of the, and you hear all the stuff that's going on how do the one thing i um we're coming up in the hour here but it doesn't seem like this dark sky issue is an important environmental issue. And like, it's almost like it's not environmentalism. It's something else or wh whatever. It's, it's not included in the, you know, in the talk about environmental impacts. It's like, everything's about carbon. Everything's about carbon, 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 carbon. But I actually think that that's a very difficult issue to solve. The carbon issue is very complicated. And, uh, we don't even have the technology to solve it. We don't even know how we're going to do it. But, the dark sky issue seems really solvable to me, actually. It's like, it doesn't seem that difficult. We change, you know how many outdoor lights I've changed in the last 10 years? Oh my God, it's ridiculous. And I'm just a little small lighting distributor in Toronto. I mean, the amount of outdoor lighting that's been, that you can change, boom, 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 boom. We could do this so fast and so right. It would be, it, it, and, and the level of control that you have now, that you, so easy to control it. The sensors are amazing. Like, it just—it's such a solvable environmental issue. Why is it not included in the conversation? Yeah, it is solvable. That's exactly the point. Uh, we can—we could turn it off, and with turning it off, we would um, reduce the um, problems populations and organisms have with other pollutants, with um, climate change, because their resilience would be better when the light would be natural. Mm. And we have techno technologically the power to change it and to change it pretty fast. Mm -hmm. We just need to get this issue more into the hats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it starts now, and I'm pretty happy to have in Germany at least this action plan for insect protection. This uh, made the whole subject become an issue. Uh, four years ago, I, we didn't find a call for light pollution. Um, and research. So we always had to 
show that we are somehow an environmental problem and that we want to solve there something. But now it is in the plan, in mm. the insect protection plan. And it is timely because the other thing is that we have a lot of insects that emerge at nighttime from the water column and bam, they are at the light and over. So we disturb the ecosystems in the first point. And we, in our project in Germany, species protection through friendly lighting, um, we um, want to change this and want to have a, a lighting um, that have not just full cutoff, but that that the, the geometry is not pointing towards the water, neither that we can see the lighting point at all. So we only want to see the light at the street where we need it. And um, this is hard for the companies because they are used to um, wide um, light distribution curves and now they have to narrow it down and somehow they go against what they have learned for years. Yeah. <laughs> but they work with us because of the plan, because of the insect protection plan. And I'm very, this is really helpful for us to get together and to, to um, work together with the lighting companies on the solution, how we can protect the insects and the ecosystems. And I think this is really timely and I hope that in the next years we can show there is a technical solution where we can walk at the river, where we can feel safe because we see what is on the ground, we see all the objects, we can see our faces, but we will lose the orientation points, the lighting point. Mm. Um, that's the only matter. And we will ask the citizens how they see the difference. But I think with the knowledge that we protect our ecosystems, um, it will be fine and it will be a nice solution. And maybe one day we will think back and think, oh, God, how did we illuminate our cities? How did we illuminate yes. <laughs> our shores? For sure. For sure. But that's the path, Ron. You know, you know I, um, and I want to, can I speak to you five minutes after we, we finish the show? I just want to sure. ask you, I want to ask you for a favor, but I'm excited. I, I just like when, when I think about this issue, like I love it for the science and the morals and the ethics, but I just lick in my chops to change so many lights. Like, let's get going. <laughs> like, I'm so excited. It's like, let's start a dark sky lighting boom. Everybody. What are we waiting for? We're all going to get rich on dark sky lighting. <laughs> Like, what are we waiting for? Come on, nailed. Come on. Let's go industry. Let's just change it all again. We're pushing reset. It's 10 years ago back again. We got to do it all over again. We made a major mistake. and We need to fix it. And we're going to do it now. And I just love it. I love the issue. And, and so, um, Dr. Schroer, thank you for being a guest on the show today. And um, I really appreciate you as a person, just your, your research and passion on this issue. It's so contagious, isn't it, Jane? It is. I'm so thankful. And I, I loved how your evolution went from studying aquatic ecosystems to, to light um, and seeing how important it is. Uh, it it's washes over most people to think about the importance of light and how it's been this one factor that has been the same on the planet except for the last 150 years. So thank you for your research and for getting that information out there. It's so, so important. Yes. Yeah, and thank you that I can get the information out there. That was really pleasant. And um, yeah, thanks a lot. Keystone Technologies. That's right. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com, baby. You know what? Keystone's back. They're coming out with something hot. 
We got a line of outdoor light fixtures for all you distributor peeps out there. You people listening in, check it out. It's called XFit. I'm sure Scotty's showing them on the screen right now. They got color selectable. You can lower that Kelvin temperature for your client. Get them start getting them used to that dark sky thing that we're all going to change it all over to. That's right. I'm talking starting a lighting boom. What's Colgan talking about now? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody says, I don't like dark sky. I don't want to do dark sky. It's not safe. Ugh. Listen to the show. Everything's going to be okay. But you know what? We're going to get it going again. That's right. All this means is that every single light fixture out there today, almost every single one, over 99% are in play. That's right. Everything's back in play again if we go dark sky. Come on, folks. Start thinking about dark sky. Start talking about dark sky. Start figuring out dark sky. And we're going to get hit you with Ellis Evolve coming out. We're going to have a dark sky part of it. But you know what? We got to throw it over to Keystone to finish this thing off because you got to go to K E Y S T O N E T E C H dot com, baby. <laughs> <laughs>